You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, another Between Seasons bonus episode covering the Blade Trilogy and, sadly, Morbius. Featuring Blood Raves, Blood Packs, Blood Gods, Blood Serums, Blood Cocaine, and Donnie Yen. Jacob? Yes. And when the fuck did you see my dick, fuckface? Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready for some Wesley Snipes? Dude, I am, I've been ready for this for 24 years. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on the podcast a few times about, I think both of us saw it with our dads for the first time in the theater, because this is what, 98? So yeah, we were both about 16. I took my dad to, like, basically dragged my dad to Blade in the theater, and like, I think this is the one where you notoriously sat in a, a woman's lap that you didn't know. <laughs> Dude, that's right. I was just thinking about, so it was a weird day. Like I was so, I was so, I'm before you sat in a, a random woman's lap. Yeah. So like, I liked the blade character cause he had been on the animated series, Spider-Man. Okay. And he's in a two episode, uh, uh, thing, an arc with Morbius. He's oh, wow. hunting Morbius. Oh, Jesus, we have to. We should let everybody know too. We're talking about Morbius this episode. Yeah, but mostly Blade. Um, Thank God. It, yes. Um, and I remember I was like, Dad, I really want to see this movie. I remember reading about it, the Fangoria had a spread on it. Yeah. And then I saw the trailer for it before Halloween H two O. It came out a month after H two O. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yep, because it was like I saw that. My dad would always get mad because I'd leave the movie theater talking about the next movie I wanted to see. He's like, "Let's just enjoy what you just saw." And I was like, "But dad, it's digest your meal, son." <laughs> yeah, he's like, Seriously. you know, I was like, "All right." I'm like, so it was yeah, it was a Saturday morning. Uh, we went to Lowe's sixteen, which is the theater in uh, Greenwood, Indiana. And uh, yeah, I was fifteen. That was the age where my dad would pretty much take me to see. 14 going on 15 is right before I turned 15. And he'd be like, for action movies, anything. That was like our, our thing we did on Saturday mornings. And we misread the time because, you know, this is pre, pre-internet pre at home. So we were looking in the... So in we the, look shit up in the paper. In the paper or call or call the number. And we, we misread it. And so we came in and the blood was already pouring down. Oh! So I, I missed the first like six minutes. I missed Tracy Lords, all that shit. And... I, we were like, we're just like, like, dad, shit, we fucked up. And like, we're rushing through. Yeah. And I sit in this lady's lap and she like yelps. 
And I'm like, oh, fuck. And my dad's like, come on. <laughs> sat on a chihuahua. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just like, so I was like, I, I was, I was off from the beginning, but like then the actual killing starts where he just, just annihilates just, an entire weird, like, I don't even know how to say it. It almost looks like an empty bathhouse that they turn into a rave because he's like, like there's like shower drains and shit. And he's just cutting people up. It's so amazing. It's a, it's a, um, it's a butcher house. Well, I knew it was in the back of a butcher shop, but like they go through that secret entrance and then like there's all that tile and stuff. So is it just the the back of like a, a butcher shop as well? That's Jesus. How big is this fucking butcher shop? I, I think it's it's huge um, yeah. or it's or it's like almost like a meat, like a meat right, factory, meat plaque, like packing facility. Yeah, because you have like the that woman picks up the hooks, meat hooks, and it's like coming at him during that one part. Um, I'll just but uh, this movie hit me so hard. I'm 15. And you're 15 years old. I don't think there's a cooler movie you can see because the matrix comes out like five months later. This is before the matrix. It's a lot of crossover and style. This kind of urban comic booky thing, trench coats, like the kind of noirish leather. Well, all the Hong Kong influence too. This is a Kung Fu movie. Like the, oh, the, sure. the, the shape of the, the action and, and working up to the big boss, the whole thing is shaped like a Kung Fu film. Like, and I wish that more action films today, especially comic book films, understood that. All I want to see is like the raid with like Iron Fist or Daredevil. Daredevil got it on TV. You're like, hey, we're a new old boy with Daredevil. Like they know where their bread was buttered. Not as good. Sort of. Yeah, because they did the whole like hallway fight in Daredevil and everything. But like I, I'm not quite on board with that like you are. But I agree. Like Blade was... It, I guess as a a kid who grew up watching VHS tapes of like hard boiled and the killer was like one of the first times that I actually saw that type of shit in an American movie and was like, Oh, you can do this here too. That's awesome. Yes. And it, it's got such style. Um, cause Steven Norrington his only film before this was death machine, which I like quite a bit. Um, the one with Brad Dourif, with Brad right? Dourif. Yeah. And, and that was a film that he had like no money. And it's one of those like straight to video things with a cool fucking cover with that robotic like claw, claw coming out of the water, but it's like it kind of feels similar to Hardware, where it was like well, and he I, worked on Hardware because he was an effects guy too. That's right, because he worked on like Aliens, he worked on a bunch of stuff as like a creature effects dude, and that's how he kind of graduated up to directing, and that's where a lot of the, the the movie, especially Blade, shines, is that it's it's a showcase for him to both shoot action and give you just a bunch of really weird creature stuff like Pearl. Oh yeah. The, the, the blob vampire that's like in the back of that one room and is just farting the entire time. <laughs> it, I'll tell you the one thing that blew my mind when I saw it is the first time that blade kills a vampire and it turns to ash where I went, my my like sixteen year old brain was like with a, it was like a nuclear mushroom cloud like oh my god <laughs> like what are we watching and like it just keeps going and going and going um, until that awesome like finale where I think the CGI hasn't aged in, 
impeccably, let's say, no. but it's still Norrington playing around with like what you can do with that technology at kind of its nascent stages, let's say. Well, because everyone at that era, you remember like 97, 98 was like movies like Lost in Space that went way too far. And they look right. like a fucking PS1 cutscene now or worse. This one, I think, does use it sparingly. There's, you know, there's the blood, there's a blood effect at the end. Because um, originally, it was, he was going to be a blood tornado. Like, there's a, de- right. there's a deleted scene where it was going to be this huge kind of thing, but they're like, this looks like shit. That was, like, they, we don't have the money to make this look right. We don't have the, the effects. They're not here yet to do that. So, they're, okay, let's have him do the reshoot was this more one-on-one fight with swords. Thanks, actually, is, I think, cooler. Like, it's more... Grit. It's way better, and it fits with the movie more, is that it's, again, more martial arts and Hong Kong-inspired than anything else. Yeah, because in, in like, a good kung fu with, with a super kung fu with a supernatural twist, Deacon Frost now has this extra power. He's leveled up, so it's like, oh, shit, what do I do? You know, it's, it's it very much has that kind of the tipping of the scales you see in good martial art films of, like, oh, now I have the power, and and you'll you'll see what I can do. I think that... You know, this is David Goyer, you know, writing one of his one of his early screenplays. And he, I, I was just looking it up. He wrote it right after the Nick Fury TV show, TV um, movie with David Hasselhoff. Oh, boy. Which is a rough one. Uh, have you seen that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think I have it on VHS. Like I taped it off TV. We had a bootlegged Vulcan that we watched a bunch in the background where we didn't have anything else to throw on. It's a it's a rough watch. Um, but this movie, I mean. I'm going to say something that's been said in a million screen rant articles and watch mojo shit of just like the comic book film that birthed the modern comic book film. And, but I don't think that's hyperbole. I think I wouldn't say birthed them, but gave, gave a roadmap to future filmmakers of how you can do it. Um, I think the, the costume that he's wearing is quite similar to what they wear in the first X-Men, for instance. Sure. Uh, it's like, okay, just do black, do like black leather instead of garish, you know, cartoon, cartoony stuff for blade as well. Like, Oh, it's, it's also a horror films. So we can kind of lean on the horror elements and not go too comic booky. It's a hard R, a hard fucking R. Um, but you can see films that came after that kind of ran with the right parts and the wrong parts. <laughs> Too, because they were you know, the early two thousands, as we'll get to with Morbius, which feels like that era. A lot of stumbles of wait, why did it work for them and it's not working for us? Well, I think the thing that I responded to on this viewing most of all was that it feels disreputable still. Like, <laughs> well, and, and I'm being honest, like to, to jump off of what you're saying to where like it gave birth to what we know is like the modern comic book. Uh, franchise film is that before this they were still figuring it out and frankly no studio really wanted to touch comic books like they were off limits you know places like canon were trying to make comic book movies and making shit like the punisher and then also assigning people like toby hooper to potentially make like a spider-man film or like you know albert pune was making a captain america movie like these were like b and c and even z grade in some cases movies the corman fantastic four the corman god yeah the corman fantastic four is is brutal (laughs) But I mean, 
up until this point, like that's where these movies kind of lived was that schlocky arena. Save Batman and Superman. That was like the only exception. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You had, you had Superman, you had Batman, but like they hadn't really figured out the other characters. I always found it interesting that of all the icons from the Marvel universe that they used to break comic book movies into the pop culture kind of lexicon, it was Blade. Which is as much uh, black exploitation as it is Hong Kong as well. Like this felt like a melding of all the things that like I would go on to love for the rest of my life. Is that like, here's a little bit of black exploitation. Here's a little bit of Hong Kong uh, action filmmaking. Here's some hard like vampire horror. And also, frankly, here's fucking Wesley Snipes, who's amazing in this movie. And that's the. That was the way that I could convince my dad to see this movie is because he loved Passenger 57. Like, you told me absolutely that. Absolutely yeah. adored it. And he was like, fine, Wesley's in it. I'll go. He's, um, he's amazing as his acting performance is really good in this. He really balances the tone because, it's again, it's a comic book vampire movie. And he kind of winks a little bit in certain scenes at the audience, but he plays it fucking straight. Like you lose that in two and three where he starts being jokier. They get a fuck as the first chance they get. And by the third, he's straight up goofing, you know, coochie coo. It's like, all right, let's calm down. You know, he talks to the baby in, in. Well, and I think one of the things that he does better than maybe anybody who's ever been in a comic book movie is pose. Like he, oh what he hits those certain poses and those certain iconic moments to where like he just knows how to be in front of a camera so that it captures like that character's essence and like you could just screen cap and be like that's fucking Blade that's his whole like aura you know he didn't create the three point like stand like because like they had a whole joke about it in Black Widow or like her right. sister's like well that's what I thought about too and when Blade I was watching did it, it this first time. Yeah. like he did it in the movies it's, it's in, from comic he books did it better he, and he he just looks you're so right I never thought of it that way he's such a from also just like a formidable like physicality. Yeah, you know, of one of my favorite shots is when he when he runs after he has been drained of blood and he feeds on the bush right and and grabs his his tack vest, does that spin and just lands up and he's like frost. It's just so again like kung fu, like calling out you know your enemy and he's his physicality for that whole scene too poses, but also. The way they did the martial arts, so I, I watched a whole face. So I had this is the first DVD I ever owned, was Blade, and I, I watched it so much that I, I literally scratched it. Like it I, was pretty early in in my collection too. We I won a TV at school in '99, and I didn't. We did. We just got a new TV. My dad goes, "Why don't we return it and get it?" And I was like, "He's like, what do you want?" I said, "I don't know, like an N64, whatever PlayStation." I was like, oh shit, there's just DVDs because that was the only way you could get movies right away. Because with VHS, you couldn't, right? Right. Because like, that's the only way you could get films that were brand new. You had to wait usually like you know 90 to 100 days for like the VHS to come out or an old copy to be at your video store. The only reason I wanted it was for Blade. So I got it, brought it home. I watched Blade like five times in two days. I just had it on a fucking repeat. I'm just like, this is all I want from life. Um, it's the one I have on VHS now. DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K. It's like the one movie I've had on all <laughs> available media. Well, it's still such a great-looking movie. That's the 
the thing that one of the other things that struck me watching this, and and frankly, I said something to you before uh, we were going to start recording about you might disagree with me, and you, you definitely are after what you just said. Is that like on this viewing, my brain went, I think this is the last time I'm going to watch Blade because I was just like, I've seen this so many times that like I could recite every line, I knew every beat of every scene. And like, it wasn't in a comfort food way. It was just kind of like, you've watched this too much. Like you just know this movie inside and out. And like, maybe you don't need to watch it anymore. But like, one of the things that I really, really like about it is that like, especially compared to the modern uh, MCU film is that like, there's so much style to this. It's so unique and singular and like all of those like, Uh, time-lapse shots of the city, that whole, like, scene where Blade's, you know, black muscle cars going through and, like, they're speeding up and speed ramping and going down. It whips around that corner and all of a sudden there's that vampire just feeding on a girl and stuff. It's just... It, it puts you in that nightmare, midnight world uh, like no other movie really has since. And I was just utterly struck by how stylish it was. And frankly, bummed out that Norrington got punched in the face by Sean Connery and then never made another movie again. Yeah, because I dragged my parents to see League of Extraordinary Gentlemen opening night 2003. Because I I was still of the mindset that the director is great, the movie will be great, right? And Blade is a really well-directed movie. I love it. Honestly, for me, like a 10 out of 10. I wouldn't change anything. Talk about a movie that just got ruined by the studio, like a lot of issues behind the scenes with with League. Well, and it's great to bring up and when we talk about Morbius later, a movie that feels like it was put through a blender and like might be a whole season of TV compacted into like a hundred and five minutes, let's say. Yes. And like League is just it's almost incomprehensible at certain points. Oh, it's really bad and like really horrible CG, which we'll get to Morbius as well. The thing about Blade that you mentioned in your texting me was comparatively speaking to Marvel MCU's film specifically today, it's very quaint in terms of size. Yeah. And I really miss the, the films of that size where it's it's very um so, so to speak, street level, they'll say in movies these days where it's like not, you know, giant sky beams, which you have at the end of every MCU film. It's more it's more personal. Yeah, you have the guy who's going to basically bring upon the blood god and end the world, but it still feels like a hallway movie. Like most of the scenes are. It's a weird combination of the two sensibilities to where like it would predict what the MCU would take too far with the whole, like every movie ends with a big thing in the sky and lights and like they have to punch each other in front of a bunch of CGI backgrounds and blah, blah, blah. This takes that and is like, yeah, but what if it was just about two dudes sword fighting to stop that from happening as opposed to shooting like Iron Man into the thing in the sky and blowing it up and making it stop. Like it's just doesn't take it too far. It introduces the idea with, without losing the actual tone of the movie that it's, that came before it, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And something we mentioned, I think one of the other times we brought up this film was during our crow episode and that this feels like the next step after crow, right. Of very similarly speaking of, a hyper violent version of LA, you know, versus the hyper violent version of Detroit in the crow, you know, 
impeccable production design where this is like every every frame is like filled. It's it's very similar, honestly, to production design and the cinematography of the of the Batman. You know, where it feels like this completely lived in world. There's just detail everywhere you look. And again, you're saying with Stephen Norrington coming from a background of being in production on all sides, this is a guy who understands how to film a frame, you fill a frame and then you get to the third blade and you realize what it looks like when that's missing, you know? Um, what's the whole James Cameron thing to where like you, you came up in the industry behind the scenes, doing matte paintings, doing effects, like just a real hands-on craftsman. So when, when it came time for you to actually take the reins behind the lens, like you knew every little intricacy of production and were able to, to, uh, manipulate it to your will, let's say. Yeah. Now, the one thing I do want to ask you about is, do you still like Steven Dorff in this movie? I go back and forth on him. I love him in this movie. Um, I go back and forth on Dorff in life, like in other movies. Sure. I, I find we both have friends who had personal interactions with him, <laughs> which makes you think differently. Cody's uh, wife. Yes. Um, <laughs> he harassed Cody's wife in a bar and she told him to go fuck himself. Yeah. So that makes me, that's not our story to tell though. We need Cody back to tell that one. Yeah. Um, but that, that's one of the reasons I just, I, I, I have that in my stuck in my craw when I, when I watch him now, I just think he's a horrible actor. Like I think he works here for what he's doing. Cause he's the total like nineties cyberpunk. Fuck boy. Yeah. Fuck boy. <laughs> Who honestly to bring it back to black exploitation reminds me of the white supremacist, uh, villain that would always be yep. at the center of those seventies black, black exploitation films of like, I want to ascend. I want to bring the master race here. And I think it, it works really well since we have a black hero who's trying to stop it. And like, he's the key to being part of the master race, which is always kind of interesting. Like they're trying to harvest that, that black DNA to advance their cause almost to get out grudgingly <laughs> in a weird way. Also, how many movies have fucking Udo Kier anymore? Like Udo Kier just showing up slithering suit through scenes, giving you that awesome Udo Kier just vibe the entire time and then exploding in sunlight. That's a great death. God, that, that, that's awesome. That mix of like CG with like practical. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. It still just the way so he good. melts away throat, in like street trash style. His throat tears apart and like is like in tendrils. Ugh. Real quick, though, it's funny. So I watched this as a double feature with Armageddon um, and 98 movie style. And Udo shows up in that, too. He's one of the doctors testing everyone to go up to space. Oh, yeah, you're right. And he's only in it for like 30 seconds. Very, yeah, barely. He's the psychiatrist. He's like kind of like has the, he's like twi- twisting their, their isn't he quiz- quizzing Buscemi in the one scene? Yes. Yeah. Like, what do you see? Yeah. it's like breasts, your breast, you with breasts. Yeah. And, but there's, um, you bring up a good point though, is like the movie really knows how to be like hokey at the right points at, yeah. as well. And but back to Steven Dorf though, I think the reason he works as well is he actually is really funny in this movie. Like a lot of his bits, like when Donald Logue, randomly punches blades like god we haven't even gotten to donald logue yet so donald logue is delightful in this movie like he's the 90s incarnate he's he's so good what was that tv show he had it was like like a roseanne type show oh i can't i know what you're talking about but i can't remember i always remember him from isn't it the Tao of steve i love that that, movie that great little indie comedy he was in yeah it's amazing he um 
but from the beginning, he he kind of injects, like you said, that '90s, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, sensibility sensibility to the film. You, well, and it also places you in a very specific time. It's just like Donald Logue's not in a 2022 blockbuster; <laughs> he's in a 1998 blockbuster. That's when you know what era of filmmaking you're watching. He's very because um, he was in the new Resident Evil. He plays, and it's terrible. But oh, the Raccoon City one. Oh yeah, it's rough. Um, you seen that? No. Yeah, I do not recommend to anyone. Um, but he, uh, there's a story, I guess, a behind the scenes thing is he was in that awesome burn makeup when he, because he's torched by Blade after the opening scene. And he's, uh, you know, gets his hand chopped, he gets his arm chopped off um, in the hospital and runs away. So he was still wearing his makeup. He was, he's a motorcyclist. So he loves to, and so he had his makeup on. He like went out for lunch or something and got in an accident, like when they were shooting and, bro- oh, wow. and broke his jaw. So he walks into the emergency room wearing his makeup still in full burn and like everyone's screaming and like losing their shit because he's still they're like this guy's like completely he's torched. dead. He's just a dead man. He's just like zombie. Like he literally, his jaw was like dislocated and he's just like kind of just like still like zombifying in going into the emergency room. I just love that image. Um, God with those fucking weird white boy cornrows too. Oh, yeah. He's almost like the exploding spinal tap drummer of blade. Just <laughs> how like blade keeps chopping his arm off. That was the joke I kept thinking about or like, what were the, what were the cameramen in man bites dog who keep getting like executed and dying behind the scenes. Yes. It's just such a great running joke the entire time. But I want to use one other performance to talk about to transition into blade two is Chris Christopherson. Oh, why have we not talked about him already? Is like, man, Whistler is the heart and soul of the movie Beyond Blade, and I just love him in this. Like he, we always talk about with a lot of these movies, like the performers who know exactly what movie they're in. Being game, yeah, and like Christopherson knows like what Blade is and who Whistler is, and nobody else in my mind could ever play that part now. I feel really rotten that I haven't brought him up already. I've been listening to Christofferson for the last two months. Like he's my new favorite like singer. I've just been like, I got this, this whole book about the outlaw country. Oh yeah. It's like the history of outlaw country called outlaw. And I'm just like obsessed with him right now. So he's a great performer. He's a great actor. And you're right. He brings, like actually brings a lot of gravitas to his scenes. You know, like my favorite scene though is just him telling the tale of, of when he, his family was killed by vampires you know, it, the way it's shot, it like it comes from the beautifully shot. It comes from behind this like this pillar, and he's treating the leather of his leg brace with um with like leather, uh, basically shining leather, whatever you know. And um, I was like, I love that scene. It also mixed with another part of this movie that's amazing is the Mark Isham score. I mean, you oh have, my god, yeah! You have the guy who scored Point Break. You know, and it brings this real ethereal kind of vibe to, to a movie you would not ex- uh, uh, versus like the, the Brian Tyler's of today. Well, you know? don't you hear a little bit of like the weird sound effects of them dying in the background behind the score and yeah. stuff too? Like it's it's a really like oddly moving scene for like this type of movie. He's been in a couple of the movies that I have loved the most that I, my like first time watches from like the last year, especially during COVID is I had never seen Cisco Pike before oh, where so he's he, plays the small time uh, drug dealer who's first pursued film, by a very janky uh, Gene Hackman. And then also he's in this amazing 
uh, Alan Rudolph uh, movie oh, yeah. called Songwriter with him and Willie Nelson. And it's all about to bring it back to your outlaw country thing where it's all about the Austin, Texas music scene before like Austin was a real city. Like it's, it was really just kind of this weirdo borough on the outskirts of like society in Texas. And like him and Willie Nelson play this duo of like songwriters together who are just like, they have the sweetest, most amazing chemistry. And it's literally like Willie's like the, the main character in this. And, and Christopherson's more or less playing himself as this like kind of hard living, drinking, drugging, womanizing, like badass and how they can never like quit each other. Like they're the partnership who uh, kind of sustained each other throughout their entire lives. Like if you can find songwriter out there, it's, I believe it's on a very cheap Blu-ray from like an MVD or oh, one cool. of those. It's just an incredibly sweet, quaint little movie that like, unlike anything you've ever seen in your life, but well, they're best friends in real life. Yeah. I mean, he and Willie are and like it's, it's basically tight. about that. And like, man, the music in it obviously is just amazing. And also uh, one of my favorite directors or new favorite directors that I want to do a whole episode on in the future. Richard C. Serafian plays, uh, the big record producer villain in the movie oh, and cool. he's tremendous in it. It's just, uh, we could do a whole episode on songwriter and I would just lose my mind, but it is Whistler's ultimate fate in blade becomes the prologue in blade Two. That I don't... And okay, it's it's one of my two biggest nitpicks in this entire series. My first biggest nitpick in the entire series is the sunscreen. I oh, don't dude. understand oh, yeah. the sunscreen. Like or just, or whole, just wearing black. Like the whole <laughs> weird thing where like Steven Dorff and them, they're allowed, they're able to execute Udo Kier. And also he kidnaps that little Asian child. Like, and he's just wearing sunscreen. Even Blade comments on it. He's like, your mascara is running. And you're like, I don't get... But did Dracula never think of sunscreen? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And they bring it back because they bring it back in two as well. And not three. Three, they're wearing like motorcycle helmets at the beginning when they, they exude. Plus like extra mass underneath that. Yeah. Which actually, that's a cool design, I think. That, that one makes more sense to me than just throwing on like a bunch of SPF 3000 or whatever it is. Now, my second biggest nitpick is that like... I guess spoilers if you've never seen Blade. I don't know why you'd be listening to a podcast episode about Blade if you've never seen this, like, what, 20-plus-year-old And if you haven't, at this stop now and yeah, just go watch now it. And just go fucking watch Blade. But, like... <laughs> I envy you. He kills himself in Blade. Like, after being attacked and tortured by Frost and his men. Like, it's one of the big, like, emotional moments in the movie where, you know, Blade walks off, gives him the gun, you just hear the gunshot in the back, and it's like you know, that this just really moving, again, kind of thing in the the middle of this very schlocky, violent comic book movie. But then in Blade 2, it's like the vampires like took his body and were keeping him alive to like feed on or something or like in stasis and Blade has to go like rescue them in a really great action sequence that kind of opens the movie and kind of announces what the movie's intentions are is that he's, you know, Guillermo del Toro's coming in, taking the reins and like really upping the action in this to another level, which we didn't actually think was kind of possible after the first movie. But like I even revisiting it, I hadn't rewatched blade two in some time. I was like, 
yeah, I don't know, man. Like, this just feels like a whole, like, bullshit way of being like, we need to get the band back together. Like, how do we write this off, almost? No, it's it's kind of egregious, but I totally just forgive it being a comic book movie. It feels like wrestling or comic or any kind of comic book things. Like, he's not really dead. Or like, you know, yeah. or like a horror movie thing with the end of, like, um, H2O into resurrection of like, Oh, she didn't chop the right guy's head off. He's like ridiculous. Oh, that's a good comparison. Actually. Yeah. Hoops you jump through, but I, I totally agree on a logic per, from a logic perspective. No. Um, I'm glad you brought up wrestling because like, this is one of the great WWE productions that wasn't actually produced by the WWE. Like this movie takes so much influence from pro wrestling right down to fucking snipe suplexing what Ron Perlman at the end, no, the guy right before Ron Perlman. Oh, is it right before him? Yeah. yeah. The, well, there's something. So I love to, and I, this was a movie that I, um, came out my senior year. Uh, it was spring of 20. 20- uh, 2002. Um, so yeah, I me was, too, it was March 22nd. I remember the date because it was a Friday and a week earlier, Resident Evil came out, which was the 15th. I remember they were a week apart. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't remember that much <laughs> detail, but I definitely saw both in theaters. I was like, just beside myself with excitement. I said, Oh my God, it's another blade movie. I was in a play. We were doing Cinderella and I was Prince charming. And it was, we had the, the play was that weekend. So it per, the play was Friday night, and then we had a Saturday night show. So I went to a matinee Saturday before I had to go back and sing a bunch of Rodgers and Hammerstein. So for me, like, Blade Two and Cinderella are, like, forever <laughs> meshed together in this weird way. This is, like, the the uh, nexus of all of your interests happening at once. <laughs> You're like, Blade Two and Rodgers and Hammerstein. And musical theater. What's the... Uh, equation of Martin Carlson. <laughs> it's right there, you know? Um, but I remember, I really didn't know who Del Toro was yet. I had already seen... Because um, this is still early for him. Because he was offered Blade 1. So he was offered the first Blade after he did Mimic. Wait, really? Yep. And I heard him interviewed about it. This is... <laughs> and he talked about it. He said, I was offered Blade 1 after I did Mimic. And he had a horrible experience with the Weinsteins. I think we've all, a lot of us have heard about, right? Just a legendarily terrible experience. Yeah, because it took years for his actual cut of the movie, which is still not 100% his cut of it, I believe. Yeah, they did like the, the, the Blu-ray or whatever. But he had a bad experience and also realized, I got to go do my own thing. And so he went and did Devil's Backbone. He went. He kind of went home and did a, a production of a, a kind of personal story. Because he'd only really made Kronos at this point, too, right? Kronos then mimic. Yep. Yeah. And so he was offered Blaze. Like, no, he go, I think he said, like, I'm not ready to do another one like that. Like, I want to go back. And I'm glad because my favorite Del Toro film is Devil's Backbone. And so I'm really glad he did. And he comes back and does this, and then he does Hellboy, and then does Pan's Labyrinth. So it's kind of like he'll he'll hang out in Hollywood land for a bit, go do like the personal projects. I think. One of the things that cannot be overstated about Del Toro, he really knows how to direct action. He knows how to shoot it. Like, up to Pacific Rim. Like, he did better with the, the physicality of those robots than, like, Michael Bay ever did in terms of making them feel heavy. You know, he understands, you know, how to shoot for scale. 
Um, sure. My only issue with Pacific Rim is that he shoots so much of it in the dark or the rain or underwater, so you lose a lot of the impact of it. True. Yeah, I think I, I think he's he's going for quote unquote realism and trying sure. to add the layers of kind of like what they went way too far with with the Gareth Edwards um, Godzilla. Yeah. Where he's like, it's like cool and it's epic. We're like, I don't, I can't see anything. Like it's so dark. Because um, that was the year after Pacific Rim, right? Um, they definitely took a page from that, but. Like you said, from the opening scene, has a really fun comic booky vibe. For, also, just the tone immediately off the bat is is goofier. Like it, it feels goofier than the original. I think part of that is Del Toro, and I think part of it is just already in the script. I think that that Goyer is like, all right, I'm gonna play with some <laughs> some different tones here, um, especially with the van- his interaction with like Ron Perlman. The rest of the Blood Pack, he's more comedic. I think Norman Reedus is kind of comic relief for like half the movie. Well, and then you have the entire relationship when they bring Whistler back and he's interacting with, is it Spud? Scud. Scud, that's it. Like Scud. Stud. Scud, you know, like Stud? Yeah. Like their whole interaction as being almost like two cues for Blade. Yep. And they, they start to get along and they, they have a really good charisma or, or chemistry together. Which makes sense because I feel like Daryl and The Walking Dead could be played by a younger Christopherson. Man, yeah, like they have I a similar kind of like, that way. Yeah. like down home country boy with a kind of badass, a little bit of edge, to bit, them. but also sweet on the inside. You know, the thing about Blade Two uh, that I was struck by the most is how much of a Del Toro movie it really <laughs> oh, is. Yeah. Like the design of um, what are the the, the, new, the the Reapers? The Reapers, yeah. The I almost called them the Reavers, but I knew it was the Reapers. The new vampires and the way that their mouths open up is really disgusting yeah. and horrifying. All the weaponry uh, looks like something straight out because Del Toro's known for all of his like multiple sketchbooks and stuff, yep. and all these things Got that one over there. just come out of his head, you know. And like, but also the the thing I had never actually thought about is where the first movie is about. Uh, kind of has a, a, a black exploitation vibe and like the white supremacy thing. Like this is very much, it falls in line with Del Toro's fascinations with fascism mm. because it's always about this overarching uh, body of power that has, let's say a nefarious intent or is trying to oppress uh, a, another part of the race or a, a another country um like pan's labyrinth which he would make later is all about it's an entire allegory for fascism devil's here, backbone yep yeah devil's backbone uh, but here we have uh you know the vampire overlords that we never were even hinted at in in uh, the original blade because blade gives you the high table and everything but here <laughs> it almost feels like an entirely new like kingdom that these guys are overseeing and how they were doing like secret experiments, even on their own children uh, to create like their own version of like the evil day walkers, let's say. And then that's as the movie morphs, it goes from being aliens with blade and vampires to like another one of del Toro's very Gothic tragic melodramas between fathers and sons and, and the, the uh, powers that be and the people that they oppress and the people that they keep down the entire time. And I was like, Oh shit, I don't think this ever 100% dawned on me. Like how much of this feels like an autorist work. I think you're totally right. And 
I really liked your your comments on fascism. I didn't think of it in that way because it is a common theme. I mean, it, it goes up to Hell, Hellboy too. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, what I agree there. It's also interesting that Del Toro has certain interests beyond that in terms of fairy tales. And so, in the first one, vampires are, are bad. Like there aren't good vampires except for Blade. Like they should all fucking die. Like there's really no if ands or but. There are people like Pearl. They're these monsters and they're grotesque. Del Toro, like, is like he's like Clive Barker with the beauty of the monster, you know. Right. And, and so you have you, you have there's now layers of of the Reapers are the, the 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 monster, but then you have the kind of beauty of obviously um, the the woman he falls in love with, the, the daughter of of Damaskinos, and and she, you know, it's okay. Hey, like she it becomes more. He finds the gray area where she says, "Hey, we're just trying to live too. I was born a vampire, like." you want to kill all of us, but like, we're not all like that. You know, I, I like that. It kind of put some gray area without going full last Jedi on it. You know, of like, okay, there's still bad guys. Like we still need to take out the villain. And well, it's, it's about royalty too, yeah. because mm-hmm. you have a king like Shakespearean. Well, yeah, exactly. You have a king and then his princess and then his, his forgotten prince who, who was cast aside because he was turned into a freak because of the thing, the, the sins that the, the father uh, bestowed upon him against his will. It's quite wonderful. Well, it's Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. It's full. Cause he's like father. He's like wanting to meet the maker. Yeah. It's like Blade Runner too, right? You know, Frankenstein. I'm just like, why did you make me? I actually <laughs> think that back half, like here's the thing about Blade two. And I, I want to be careful when I say this because like Blade two is still a compact two hour movie. And I I don't want to say like this movie's too long, especially in an age where every fucking Marvel movie has to be like nine years long. But like there is a stretch of blade two that I think is almost too set piece heavy, regardless of how good the set pieces are. When you go from like the house of pain sequence into the uh, cavernous kind of subterranean aliens sequence. It's repetitive. Like like it's a little repetitive and I'm like, okay, like my, my brain started to zone out like a little bit. And then when we actually get to all the tragic melodrama at the end, like that's when I re-engage with it and I went, oh shit, he's really doing a thing here. And this is really cool. That being said, back to your point, the action in this fucking movie is so good, (laughs) but it's good in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Where like this almost feels more in line with like if the original Blade is more of like a martial arts film and really plays on like Snipes' physicality and and how great of a fighter. Like he's a really, really good in-camera performer. This is all about the weaponry. Like they fucking blow motherfuckers away and then they have Donnie Yen playing a dude called Snowman like swooping in and just cutting motherfuckers in half. And then that entire like subterranean hunting sequence, those UV bombs that they're using that sequence where he puts the timed bomb out and all the, 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 the reapers rise out of the water and he explodes them and cuts them all in half. I'm like, Oh, like he, do you, again, to your point, he's so good at this type of stuff, but he's giving you, I think what's cool about blade two is that he's giving you a different type of action. He's giving yes. you his version of the Hong Kong movie where Norrington was giving you his vision of it as well. And they, they act as a really nice pairing together. Well, it's definitely in the way he shoots it. He goes wider a lot for, for broader. Sure. Cause like you look at the editing of the opening scene of blade and there's just some amazing, like from the, my favorite one is he has the um he has a he has a, a, a stake 
And he goes up through the guy's chin into the ceiling. Oh. And, and they do it in this three punch. It's like this bump, bump, bump. Yeah. Edit, and he spins around and punches somebody. It's like these really great edits of like, whoa, like that was great. And versus like you were, we were saying the wrestling thing, there are some wider shots, especially that scene when he's taking on all of the guards after he comes out of the bloodbath looking like a total fucking badass and just ruins these guys. And it's just these also showing his physicality, but in kind of a broader, more wrestling way and again with the suplex ending one well, scene he, he also takes another thing that weirdly unifies the two movies is that how it plays with the tech and that and to varying degrees of success let's say to where in the first one you have norrington who's a creature guy really seeing like how he could use cgi and stuff to augment the vampires and, and bring you a new kind of vision for that this del toro's like he's doing some really great practical stunt work and, and fighting and things, but he's also using CGI to create CGI stuntmen, which don't always work. Like that opening sequence when the ninjas swoop in and then blade and, and, and uh, the daughter fight in front of like that bank. The God lights. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The God lights, not the best. It's very blurry. There's a lot of motion blur on that to where I was like, Oh, this isn't great. But honestly, I think the fight at the end between, uh, Blade and the what's the lead Reaper's name again? Oh, Jared Nomack. Yeah, Nomack. Luke Goss. Yeah, yeah Luke Goss. When, when he's doing all of his crazy, like bouncing off the walls and like fucking elbow dropping Blade, and again like bringing it back to like pro wrestling. Like I actually think that stuff aged better than I remembered it. It's more. It's all transition stuff too. Right. Like you're getting at with the earlier scene. It's like a full. There's like literally like a four second shot of a profile and it just doesn't work and it, and it looks bad. And then you get to the, yeah, the end one, it's okay. Like it's hops. It's like, it's, it's between you get to, they're using it to blend together two shots and it, it, okay, cool. That works there. There's also something like stitching. Yeah. It's stitching. Yeah. Um, something you mentioned earlier though, with, with Norrington and with, uh, Wesley Snipes was, was poses. Right. And that they both got that. It's a lot of that in this movie too, because my, one of my favorite shots period by del toro in his entire career is after jared comes in and it it tilts up the ground and there's a bloodstream and it goes up and up and up and there's bodies and bodies and bodies and it's just this like mountain of guards that he's killed yeah and he's feeding on the guy and the guy's completely limp and he just like puts his head back and his his mouth, his like mandibles are open, and they come down. And he just like it's like a very Frankenstein-y look, or just like also completely badass. Like he's such a cool, such a cool villain. There's a scene too where he's running at those metal doors that are closing. He's like sprinting, and the way that Del Toro shoots it for like for speed and impact, so like it just again holds up twenty years later. Well, and also the other shot that's amazing to bring it back to your point about the beauty of the monster that Del Toro is so in love with is that final moment with Blade and uh, the princess, like, and he holds her. I just want to see one last sunset, and she slowly like fades into ash. Like, that's an incredibly moving, like, heartfelt use of. of technology yeah to, to totally get, agree yeah to kind of bring out the emotion of a scene it's it's really terrific now it i would be remiss if we moved to blade three without discussing one del toro trademark and that's ron perlman oh yeah who is like just relishing everything in this movie and also this feels kind of like in a weird way his audition for hellboy 100 yes, like he's 
I, I love their partnership together because like Del Toro just saw something in him that nobody else did. He's a, he's a fairy tale like, creature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but here like Perlman gets to be, you know, with like fucking Paul Scholes from the, the fast and furious movies and stuff in the blood pack and Donnie Yen beside him and some motherfucker called light hammer. Who's like wielding a, a giant, like Thor like hammer. And he's around. a Giorgio Romani model. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's that got those face tattoos and yeah. shit, but like Perlman, you can tell, again, kind of like Christofferson, he recognizes the moment and he knows what movie he's in and he's like, I'm going to eat this shit up. And he goes toe-to-toe with Snipes just being pulpy as fuck and like delivering that one line, you know, like my daddy always used to say before he killed my mama, if you want to do something right, got to do it yourself. I stole that line from my script I'm writing with, with Yvonne. Yeah. I just straight up, I was just like, I kind of stole it. I'll watch it. I'm like, that's a good line. It's just gonna, awesome. I'm just going to. Well, and it's funny because you have, you know, him and Paul Schultz and then uh, Christofferson, like their ball busting that leads to like them trying to kill Whistler is great. Like they're all on the same page where he's like, listen, <laughs> he goes, uh, you're about one cunt hair away from hillbilly heaven. It's just like, yeah, that's gold. Hey, like honky tonk. <laughs> Well, and also this was one of the weird movies that I feel like is one of the last gasps of the movie soundtrack. Oh, it's to where great. like it's this odd hybrid of like experimental electro and dance mu- music with like uh, rap, you know, like most deaf and stuff. I believe rapping with massive attack mm-hmm. here and like doing eye against eye and stuff. And like, it's a really cool, I remember like I bought playing the CD. this CD a whole lot in my car after this movie came out. And like you said, my final year of high school and just loving the shit out of it. But like it, it again, kind of in the, the way that blade, had a lot of the industrial and electronic music, especially with like that song from the blood rave, which is now kind of inseparable it's new order from that. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. inseparable from that scene. Like here, like I can't watch blade two without thinking about that soundtrack the entire time. Well, it's similar to what they did for the soundtrack for judgment night, where it was rappers oh, together yeah, never with, thought with about hard that. rock where they would mix, mix styles. But it's, it's, it's another thing that, that, kind of disappears in the third one, but it definitely is in the first and the second one is the spirituality. Like there's the scene in the first one where he's, he's meditating after Whistler's killed and he cuts the roots off the flower in his meditation box. Right. And it's the, the or Isham music rising. Cause like for anything I've read about tonight, especially at that time, he was very, into, he was a very spiritual guy into meditation and, and, and martial arts. And they pull that into the second one as well. And Delta, and you could tell that like Guillermo's like, I'm cool for it. Like I'll, I'll be with you. Like <laughs> it's how he justified all that tax evasion. Tax evasion. It's like he's like if every tribal tattoo. It's one year I don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> also, his tattoos are so tacky looking in hindsight. Like it looks like a douchebag at the at the fucking um, at Coachella at Coachella where it's like, oh, you see, this means like centeredness. <laughs> it's like I don't know. It looks like so. a bouncer at the Mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey man, I'm just trying to rock out to Thursday here. I don't want to get punched in the face. It's a real shit bird. <laughs> Why do you still have sunglasses on? You know it's one in the morning, right? <laughs> but let's get to Blade Trinity. Oh no. Which man, I don't even know really what okay. So here's the thing. Blade Trinity, still bad. But honestly, in hindsight more entertaining than I remembered. 
And it almost made me oddly nostalgic because it kind of feels like a DTV movie in a lot of places, almost like a DTV movie that escaped in the theaters. But like, it was also, it feels like one of the first harbingers that Ryan Reynolds is actually the antichrist because he's so bad in this. And like, but he would think about it. This kind of feels like the building block for the persona that yes. he would take and then eventually make into Deadpool. The hot guy, you know, Jim Carrey. The hot guy, Jim Carrey, who's always quippy. He's always got something to say. And like, this is coming from a motherfucker who saw Van Wilder in the theater. I still and love I Van really Wilder. liked Van Wilder. <laughs> I like, and there are times where I still like Ryan Reynolds. Like when I came over, you were just watching six underground and I was marveling being like, Oh yeah, that's right. This movie totally fucking rules. But it's like, Reynolds now at, at almost any time he shows up in a film, free guy, what is it? Red notice, the Adam uh, project, the Adam project, like just cut my dick off and feed it to me because I hate all of that shit. Well, he's been doing it now for 20 fucking years. Cause like he was right. on that show, two guys, a girl in a pizza place. That was the first time I saw him in anything. Oh yeah. And I remember cause they, but he didn't do the sexy thing. He was like literally just Jim Carrey. Like he was like, people were like, oh, he's cute. But it wasn't until I think that would be like, um, buying the cow. Um, we should do like Jerry O'Connell or something. You just looked at me like, I know what buying the cow. Oh, okay. Is. So like buying the cow. Remember yeah. we all watched that movie. It was like, I think it was straight. To, well, it might've been theaters a little bit. It's like him and like Jerry O'Connell, like Horatio Sands. And it was just like a, wait, that was, was, wasn't that Wildcats or is that a different movie? Different movie. <laughs> yeah. Different shitty Jerry O'Connell comedy. Yeah. And there were many. But it's like another one of like our buddies getting married and they're all freaking out about it. And I remember no, was- I think this is Wildcats. I think you're describing Wildcats. <laughs> but he, um, I, rem- I saw my brother about it earlier and I was just like, man, like, or wait, no, it's Tomcats. 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 What yeah. is Wildcats? Oh, that's with Goldie Hawn. Yeah, where she's the football coach. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a rape revenge movie called Wildcats. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> and um, no, I. I was watching this film in the hindsight now of we're 18 years since um, since Blade Trinity came out. Since the ascension of, of Satan. Of Satan. And we have seen, like you've, you're kind of getting at now, multiple decades of this persona playing the same thing, quippy. Like watching that this part now and his part unwatchable. I didn't laugh one time. It's just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like seriously. What opens with his narration? He's in a different movie too. Like no one else is like matching that. Well, I think part of the problem with that is that have you ever read about the production of this film? Please fill me in. It had to be a disaster because apparently snipes hated David Goyer the entire time. Didn't think he should direct anything. So like since the the first movie. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. Like he, when they got on set, apparently very early on, he realized this guy should not be behind the camera to the point to where all of anything that wasn't a close up of snipes was done with his body double the entire time. And then one of the funniest anecdotes, which I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but Apparently, the only way by the end he would communicate with Goyer was through post-it notes that he would write him notes and it would say from Blade. He would sign them that way. And that was the only way that like Snipes would let him talk to him was through little sheets of paper. So I feel like a lot of this movie was edited around that to basically make 
Reynolds, the main character. Cause this also feels weirdly like a, a passing of the torch movie too. Yes. Cause this is the second time where they're trying to do almost like a blood pack thing, but it's with Reynolds and Jessica Beal as they are the vampire hunters kind of out there and almost taking inspiration from blade. But that like, because they, they, they make it very clear from the beginning, like, Oh, it all began with blade. And now it must end with him too, that this is supposed supposed to be like the final movie in a trilogy. But like, it also feels like them being like, well, we can leave it open for the franchise to continue. Cause obviously Wesley's not into this anymore, but like this guy, Ryan Reynolds, he might have a thing going on. It's, it's interesting because they bring back Dracula and Blade premiere, Blade first showed up in the Tomb of Dracula, like the comic book. Oh, I didn't know that. So, so Marvel's, yeah, Marvel series, the Tomb of Dracula, which I don't know if they had to even own the rights. They just had a Dracula comic. And it was cool. It was like Dracula was the hero mostly. It was just like fighting other monsters. And Blade came in the first couple of years and was an early African-American superhero. And had and then it was the 70s, had more of an afro. He had a green jacket and he's like green glasses. Very different look. Um People are like, okay, this guy's pretty cool. Um, when I first heard announced they were going to do it with Dracula, I said, oh, they're going to like do Tomb of Dracula. Like they're going to that'd be really cool to do it that way. Of course, it's this really kind of milk toast like version. I really don't like that actor. I forget his name, Dominic Purcell. Yeah. I had to look it up because I he appeared because at first Dracula like crawls out and he's this big like medieval like monster motherfucker, and then later like he morphs into Dominic Purcell and Dominic Purcell. You want to talk about a guy who looks like he's at like a douchebag Coachella or oh something? Oh my, I was like, doing the same thing. Like he's wearing that weird chain and like his his bronzed pecs are out there and he's kind of almost wearing like a like a cut off tee leather pants. Like. Their pants, but he emerges from the darkness, and I was like, I looked at that guy, and I went, mm, I know your name, but I, you're not memorable enough for me to actually remember your. You're name. the guy from Prison Break, yeah, cool. Prison and, Break and Primal. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's a rough one. Oh, but he's terrible in this film, and like del- every delivery is bad. As, every delivery is bad. Yeah, and then uh, just bring Gerard Butler back. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, but I kind of like Dracula 2000. Yeah, it's pretty good. It, I actually this Patrick Lussier. Um, the thing though about this film, the, obviously, sounds like I had a lot going against it, where you have problems behind the set. Also, Goyer, I think this was his first film he directed. I he, thought he made Zigzag before this. I think you're right, but he did like after this, he did like, the Invisible with the kid who like. Oh, that movie's brutal. That's really bad. Um, Isn't that Hayden Christensen? No, it's J- Justin Sherwin. It's the kid from the Dragon Ball movie. That's another milk toast white person. I yeah. Can't remember. Also, just like real shitty spiky hair, like Ryan Reynolds in this one. Also, eyeliner, heavy eyeliner, and Reynolds in this movie. Yeah, like really and bad. chin strap beard. Yeah, just not looking good. Um, but there's a lot going he against. Kind of looks like the situation. <laughs> He's Jersey very Jersey Shore. Shore. <laughs> It, it feels like the budget, I'm not sure the budget was, it feels like a tenth of like the second one. It feels very cheap. Like the second one is just full of, of atmosphere as the first one is, right? This one was like you said, it feels like a DTV movie, obviously shot in Vancouver, the bunch of Canadian actors, which they are. They're all extras from like Battlestar Galactic. I'm like, oh, that's that guy. That guy was a Cylon. I know him. You just tell me like he just showed up in Vancouver and hadn't hired anybody yet. I'm like, who's cheap? You know, and it, talk about a film that has no style. I mean, literally no visual style whatsoever. It is, it is blank sci-fi movie claptrap. I mean, you, 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 I think if you had Del Toro or Norrington, 
just direct that script, it'd actually be an okay movie. Yeah, because there's a lot of concepts in it that, like, to your point, like, I like the idea of Blade fighting Dracula. Yeah. And then also, I like the idea of the vampires finally figuring out a way to turn, like, the rest of the population against Blade. Like, I like that that plot point of like, oh, what if the vampires framed Blade for like murder of a human being? Yes. And then puts him on the run. Now, it does have one of my favorite, it leads to my one of my favorite bits of unintentional comedy in the entire series to where like you have that whole thing to where they set Blade up. He's like, oh shit. And he like drives off. And then you cut to the FBI office to where there's a wanted poster on, on the wall. And it's a sketch of, of Wesley Snipes. And it just says, FBI's most wanted blade. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> like that, that's it. That, that was the poster you went with. It's like some of the printouts they did for Morbius. The, the, some of the insane, <laughs> You're like, okay. Um, it's and you could like you said earlier, like you can tell that like Wesley Snipes does not want to be there. He looks really old in it, even though it's like only two years after. He's the, kind of moving pretty stiff in it too. He well, he never showed because like first second one, he's happy to take his shirt off because he's just like ripped. Two years later, he's a little dad body. You know what I mean? He's got he's even he's even like the kid who wears a t shirt under the jersey when he's playing basketball. He's got those red, red shirt that he never takes off. What well, again? We don't know if that's him or if that's his body double the oh, entire time. Yeah. Because of the production stuff. It probably is his body double. That's why he doesn't look as good. Oh, man. I mean, it's just like... I Again, I think you got this earlier. I liked it better this time than the time... I think the last time I saw it was in the theater. Because I just really hated it. Because um, I would actually kill for a junkie kind of programmer like this nowadays. Where I would, like, if this came out now, I would probably give it three stars and be like, eh, you know, pretty good. Yeah. It's like movies like Frankenfish, you know? Or it's just like a fun a sci-fi movie afternoon. And this just is like, but when you come off the first Frankenfish, weird pull, but I'll, I'll I just it. love Frankenfish. Um, but you come off one and two, which just have oodles of, uh, of style and, and act all the, and even the action sucks in this one. Like even that's poorly. I think the opening action set piece is pretty good, but it feels like they shot that early and then the rest kind of goes downhill. Yes. You know, um, also triple H should not act like real bad. One of the, I think a person who's trying to lift this movie up is Parker Posey. I, I think that. Why'd they do my girl like that? Because I, I think she's horrible in it. But I like her and I love her. I think she actually looks kind of hot as a vampire. Um, well, she looks hot all the time. Yeah, I think she's gorgeous. Um, but she has the weird, like, chonky teeth the entire time. And you can tell she's, like, trying to act through these, like, crazy, like, Halloween adventure, like, plastic teeth. I could just, you could feel her trying to lift that movie up though. Like she's, she's trying to have fun, especially next. She's got triple H to play against oh. and he's just, that's the opening line we said. It was like, it's, it's, it's a like, brutal, brutal movie, but not as brutal as the next movie we're going to talk about. Morbius. Are you ready to get into it? I guess so. Fine. <laughs>
we're back with possibly the most begrudging segment of this podcast so far. Fuck. <laughs> the, uh, we're going to talk about... Is that enough? We just end the after new, Yeah. <laughs> the new Jared Leto opus, Morbius. The Living Vampire. Um, Martin... I don't know. I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't know what I can say about this movie. I watched it today. Most of it has already escaped my brain and, and floated up into heaven. Um, but w- how did you feel about Morbius? The often delayed now, cause we're what it was delayed for almost three years at so, this point. So the trailer we saw, the first trailer was released in January of 2020. So that was the trailer. We shot it three years ago, I believe. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that if and I'm, that I, I was telling you earlier, I feel like I needed to go and watch a good movie right away after because it scared me to think maybe I don't like movies anymore. <laughs> like, like I literally had that thought where I said, "Man, did this break me? This is this the one?" And I don't want to be hyperbolic, but man, this is a disaster. Like, this is the ultimate of, you could feel studio interference, um, a douchey fucking piece of crap lead actor who's not a leading man, never has been. And based on a hero, like, I'm a Spider-Man fan. Like, I grew up on that shit. I know, like, about Morbius. He's not a cool character. He never has been. He's just a vampire. He's just a vampire. Like and he And a uh, shitty one at that. Yeah, and there's not there's just what really hard about watching this movie. Okay. I'm going to compare this to something that happened this week in the, in the rest of the world. I think Morbius is the the equivalent of that Applebee's email that was released by the exec. Oh my God. So for those who haven't read this, this exec, um, regional exec for Applebee's basically sent a message out saying with, Hey, with uh, gas prices going up and the end of stimulus and the end of um, government assistance, we're going to have a lot of people flooding back in the workforce. We can pay them as little as possible. It's just a whole breakdown of basically modern capitalism in one email. And it's just a saying what we all know goes behind goes on behind closed doors and corporations. This film felt like that, where it was like they were playing their hand and saying, we really don't care about quality at all. We don't care about IP. We're trying to hold on to Spider-Man. It's a complete money move. And we're trying to stay in that world any way we can. We're, we're stretching so far that we're going to do Morbius. It is a such a deep, deep cut of, again, a character that no one asked for. I never met a Morbius fan who's like, you know, it's always my favorite character. He's fucking derivative as shit. It's a stupid fucking character. This just felt like they weren't even trying to hide it anymore. It felt like Jonah Hex again, where I, I just like, I don't, I'm not sure this, I'm not sure this constitutes as a movie. Like you said, you saw this like hours ago. I saw this on Friday. You just mentioned a scene earlier. I don't remember any of that scene. I, and I, <laughs> Like, I was there, like, this movie just passed through me like fucking Taco Bell. Like, it just didn't, my body wanted to reject it as quickly as possible. It's the approximation of a movie. That's what it feels like. Yeah. So, the thought that I had while watching it is that, so we're prepping for season three 
the official season three of, of Secret Handshake. And one of the directors we do have coming up is Dan Curtis. Um, and one of the things that I was toying with because I've been enjoying his movies so much is watching the old Dark Shadows yeah. seasons or at least episodes just to get a, a feel for like what Dark Shadows was like as a TV series because I've already watched the two feature films that he made. Um, but I found on Amazon these uh, condensed versions of these mm. like season arcs. And one was the vampire curse. The one where you, you get Barnabas Collins when he, for, because for those who don't know, and you, you'll very soon find out in one You're of our hear upcoming all episodes, about it. a lot of Dan Curtis talk, um, is that, you know, there were the early episodes of dark shadows. They actually didn't have any vampires, anything like he would, it was just a regular daytime soap it was kind of failing. He didn't know what to do. And then one of his daughter, he had a dream basically about like a, a woman on a train approaching an old Gothic mansion and how he was like, Oh, it should now be a horror thing. And one of his daughters was like, you should make it more scary. You know? So he introduced Barnabas Collins, um, which is one of the most iconic vampires in the history uh, of any medium and, and creatures themselves. So, there's a whole arc called the vampire curse that took place over like hundreds of episodes because this was all, it was very much a daytime soap. Like they were filling airtime every day. Yeah. So what this does is it actually takes all of those episodes and condenses it into one three hour block so that you get the entirety of this, this, uh, narrative arc from this soap opera and you get to digest it in a very, it's still a, a, a big meal, let's say, but it's, it's a more digestible meal than going back and watching the, I believe there's like 1300 mm -hmm. dark like shadows yeah. episodes. Impossible I tried one season. Do. It's hard. It's rough. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's very much a daytime soap. And even watching this three hour block, there were moments where I was like, Oh man, this was, this was the, the very much, of my stories type thing. They're marking time. Yeah, they're exactly. filling time. Yeah. They're flubbing lines, blah, blah, blah. That kid's real bad. But that's what Morbius feels like to me, mm. is it feels like an entire season of some streamer like series that they jammed into 105 minutes, and some of it is fucking incomprehensible. There are scenes that just happen in this movie to where I'm like, that... Nothing, nothing led up to this. Like there's a whole, because for those who don't know, it's all about Michael Morbius. He's a doctor. He, he was like a, a prodigy. He has a, he has a rare disease. blood disease. So he goes and experiments on vampire bats, splicing human DNA and vampire DNA together, injects himself, becomes Morbius, the living vampire. But also he has a really good friend named Milo, but his real name's Lucian, who's played by Matt Smith, the already very odd-looking Matt Smith, who in vampire form looks like a deadite rapist. Uh, like he, he also injects himself, and he becomes like the big bad. But one of their doctors, when they were in like an orphanage together, or like a wayward home for sickly um, boys, I think it was a hospital for something. Yeah. But Jared Harris, of all fucking people, is like their main doctor. And it like the only introductory scene that you really get of the three of them together is when Lucian arrives 
Morbius is kind of a dickhead little kid, and he's like, I'm just going to call you Milo because the other kid before you was Milo and he's dead. And then the kid behind before him was Milo and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, Oh, this kid sucks. And then basically being like, you're going to die too. So what's even the point of learning your name? Well, they of course become best friends because Michael Morbius fixes his blood transfusion machine with like a pen or something. But like the whole point of this is that the whole scene that they get together is Jared Harris bringing the little kid there and being like, be nice to Lucian and then exits. Well, 90 minutes later, there's a whole like melodramatic scene where Matt Smith throws down with Jared Harris screaming about like, you always loved Michael more than me. And I was always vying for your attention and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what movie am I watching? Because none of this was hinted at before now. This happens more than once in this movie because it feels like, to your point, a product of pure studio, both greed and intervention to where like, I don't know what Daniel Espinosa, who isn't a great director. Like I like safe house well yeah. enough to bring up Ryan Reynolds again and, and the great Denzel Washington, decent enough, it's a competent junkie yeah. action programmer, um, life again <laughs> to, to bring it to the Sony universe. A lot of people thought that life was, was going to be a venom, uh, prequel or stealth venom prequel. Okay. Outer space creature thing. That's totally forgettable and, and whatever played at South by inexplicably. But like here, you would never guess that Daniel Espinosa is a competent filmmaker because you'd be like, what did you do? You just shot stuff. And then somebody had at the studio was like, Hey, we got to cut all this together into an actual coherent movie. It also feels like a movie that like they reshot behind his back. And I believe there was some tinkering after the fact to at least fit it into the newly reclaimed Sony spider verse, because since they have the, the rights to the character now, cause you have the whole like ending with Michael Keaton coming in as, as vulture and stuff. And the post credit scene, that's like, they're going to, I think make the sinister six up or something, but like, man, this is just garbage. Well, and the problem they have from a, from a financial and like a, just a business side of things is they can't talk about Spider-Man or show him. So that's part of the deal. The only oh, really? time they can make, I didn't know that part. Only time they can make Spider-Man is in conjunction for live action is in conjunction with Disney. So, oh. so homecoming far from home and no way home are co-productions with Disney. And when Spider-Man is in a group film, they're not even involved. So like when he's in Avengers, that's not a Sony movie. They lend him. That's part of like that was part of their contract. So they are making He's a, a free agent at that point. Yes, they're making a Spider Verse where they can't have Spider Man. Yeah, because that's what they're basically doing with the Venom movies too. Is that it's yep. like here's our standalone Venom films, which I really like the Venom movies. I was hoping for something along the lines of that kind of goofy that you could overlook Jared Leto, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but like at least that had some kind of energy because like you can tell like Tom Hardy's really into Venom. Like he really likes playing that character. Both of them, let's say Um, he's having a ton of fun and he's really 
putting his all into the, especially the comedic side of Venom. Like the Venom movies are really fucking funny. Like the whole lobster tank sequence in the first one is, is great. And then the second movie is basically just an 89 minute gay, like buddy comedy the entire time with fucking Woody Harrelson playing Ronald McDonald. Directed, directed by Gollum. Yeah. Directed by fucking Gollum of all people. <laughs> like it's a totally bug. Like you can't believe Venom two actually exists. And so, I was hoping that Morbius would be something like that. What instead we got was Ben Affleck's Daredevil. Like this feels like the early 2000s coming back to haunt us in a very bad way. Or maybe like a midpoint between like Spawn and Daredevil. Because I thought of Spawn more than once. Mostly because of the junky CGI. Dude, I like Spawn a lot more in this movie. Get get, the fuck out of here. At least you get Martin Sheen playing the Oh yeah, he's really bad. He did it because his kids like Spawn. He's like, yeah, okay. Um, Who's Spawn? <laughs> yeah, well, same with like Raul Julia doing Street Fighter because his kids liked the game. So he's like, sure. Um, well, it's it's interesting because I've read a couple reviews that bring up that same point of like, this feels like an early 2000s film. Back to what we are talking about with, with Blade. Um, there was an era after Blade and around that time where they just, they couldn't quite figure out how to do comic book movies and well, like the fantastic four movies too, like fantastic that, and four the rise of the silver surfer one too. those two, um, Electra, the spinoff of Daredevil, oh my God, which, Electra. which is like one of the worst. That's real. It's, it feels like this too, where like it's barely a movie Like they cut the shit out of it. Um, also like, like, Hey, like no one asked for this and that's, I think it's totally fair. One of the reviews I read, um, actually, no, it was a, it was a Hollywood Reporter, like a long, a long form piece. Um, I forget. I think it might have been Travers. Um, I think he did for Rolling Stone, but it was a whole piece about. He goes, "I'm thankful for Venom. I think that people are being unfair to it because we live in a time of, um, you know, the commodification of superheroes, where it's just like the sameness of MCU, which you and I both agree on, right? Where it, that is a formula now." It's a formula that works and it gets them to the bank. And there is like, whether you like him or not, there is a commitment of competency to competency that it doesn't dip below. It's, it's bland, but it's like McDonald's. Like, you know what you're going to get. Well, and the other thing I think that does set it apart is that like, again, Hardy just really, really likes playing Venom. The entire time, right? But I'm talking, but with with Morbius though, that they were talking about Morbius and how they were happy. Oh, okay. Sorry, they were happy that there's a film. They're like, hey, because they they were reading a lot of stuff online, or people saying, man, fuck this movie. Let's figure out a way to have like um, do a petition like they did with the Snyder cut of let's get full control of Spider Man over to to Marvel to to Disney and Marvel. And he was like, this is a dangerous thought because you want everything to be under Disney's wing, which I completely agree with him on that. Like that's dangerous, but it's also like both things can be true where I don't want that to happen. But if you're going to fight against the Marvel machine, make a better fucking movie. Yeah. Morbius ain't the, ain't the thing that you should stand for. Yeah. You you don't want to die on this hill, dude. Like this don't stick up for this movie. This is a bad piece like this is not sony doing right by its people at all it is a fuck you and i was reading somewhere i may be incorrect i believe one of the execs who worked on this and probably haven't chopped up was the one who worked on fan fan four stick and fucked with josh trank okay so it's a very similar thing about the other film it just barely felt like a movie where it was chopped to smithereens a lot of problems in production a lot of reshoots with horrible wigs 
action in the last five minutes of the movie. Ooh, you know, yeah. Like, I think this is probably better. That's hard. It's hard. They're both terrible, but like in a very similar vein of it's not like they couldn't even figure out comic book movie. They couldn't figure out how to tell like a normal narrative. Like it's so fucked. It's still like trying to compare the flavor of cheeseburgers you found in your backyard after a <laughs> rainstorm. Like, like the one in the mud puddles a little better. Yeah, this one's all right, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to get syphilis from it or anything. <laughs> But uh, the main thing that, that is the takeaway for me is that, well, I guess two things. One, at least Matt Smith is having fun here. Like, I, I still don't like Matt Smith that much. I still can't, um, I'm sorry, Edgar Wright, I still can't get through Last Night in Soho. Hmm. Like, I just, it, it's not vibing with me at all. Um, but he's... I don't even know if he knows what movies he's in, but he showed up and was like, well, I'll give him something, I guess. Like that whole weird dance yep. scene where he's, and then he goes out to the club and like, like tries to pick up that girl and then totally lost boys. Those like fratty, like wall street bros, like in the parking lot, like weird thing, but at least he's having fun. I don't know. It's weird. Jared Leto, bad actor, but, committed actor yeah guy who's always shows up and at least gives you something fucking strange even if it's totally annoying which is 90 percent of the time here it feels like he's committed to the bit which i'll get into in a second with with a behind the scenes thing i, I read today in an interview but like there's nothing about it. Like, it's not like, like he doesn't even show up and do like the house of Gucci accent or anything. Like he's not doing any accent. Have you seen any of the, we work, we crashed. Or, yeah. Yeah. The, the footage from that where mm. like, he's doing like an Israeli accent, also very bad, but like, at least he's doing a thing here. It's just kind of like, I don't know. You look like a Hesher in a Seven Eleven parking lot who sells me like meth or something. Like, I can't figure out why you showed up to work every day. And like, because the anecdote I read, and it was in Mike Ryan's interview with Espinoza is that apparently the production would slow to a halt on, on certain days because when Leto had to go to the bathroom, he would still use his crutches to, to basically pull him there because he, he couldn't, yeah, exactly. He couldn't part himself from Michael Morbius's pain long enough because he thought he would break character so that he would basically limp out to the point to where the production actually had to bring in a wheelchair so that he could get to the bathroom faster. And Mike Ryan asked him, he goes, hey man, so I heard this uh, this behind the scenes thing. I just want to make sure that this isn't complete bullshit. And he relays the whole thing and Espinosa basically goes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God. Well, it's it's interesting because like, yeah, I don't think he's even a terrible actor. Like he is good in like Dallas Buyers Club. I think he is good in that. But also like, that's a great script. And it's funny that he gives all this like method stuff like to horse shit to yeah. horse. Cause like the script for like suicide squad is terrible. Like, and it's a horrible version of the Joker. And he's like, I'm going to go method for this. I'm like, you realize going method on shitty scripts, not turn the script into gold. Right. Like he thinks he's going to be the next Heath Ledger. What like I he's think that out he, Heath he, he does it in a way that's actually kind of interesting. And did you watch the little things that the, the HBO I didn't, I, I didn't want to serial killer movie that was left over from basically the nineties. Well, he's, <laughs> he, well, it was, it was a script that was written in oh, the nineties right. yeah. and they didn't shoot it until now. But like, Leto does a thing in that where he's do again, he has like a pot belly and he's doing a whole voice and he like in an interrogation scene goes, Oh, 
moly guacamole and i'm like it's, it's it's at least entertaining if not totally douchey the entire time but like i was watching that i was like you could you can even bring that sort of energy to fucking morbius like nobody everybody is sleepwalking through this film the entire time like jared harris looks like he's contemplating suicide every time he's he appears on camera like, he, well, and then the worst part like it's fucking it's al madrigal the comedian plays tyrese's uh partner and so here's this like this comedic like re- comic relief from breaking bad from, right yeah but he just comes out of nowhere You're like wait i don't know who you are and he'll just like make these jokes and literally that's no, how that's bad- just the name of the company in break breaking bad oh is it <laughs> <laughs> but you could cut you could cut tyrese and him out of the movie and the plot would not change. That means you have a, like a bad movie where you have basically these cops falling around what's happening and being like, I think this might be vampires. And they like, feel like the cops from Watchmen who yeah. just like show up and are almost like the weird Greek chorus yeah. the entire time. But not but, good. But Al Madrigal feels like budget John Ortiz in this. <laughs> like just really terrible. Also, what's up with Tyrese's mustache the entire time? Did he pencil that on? Did he grow that himself? Like, did his mom trim it for him? Because it's horrible. It sucks because like Tyrese in the Fast and the Furious movies is like, Ton of fun. He's great. Like they know how to use him. He's he's great playing off Ludacris and off the rock. Like we the whole, hungry. Yeah, and it's just it's he's funny as fuck. And like him just screaming a lot when they're in space and the, the ninth one, it's like, this is what I'm here for. I still haven't watched the ninth one. Oh, it's we should watch it. Okay. I, I really like it. I'm down. Yeah, I love it. Um I have all of them on 4K except for nine, but I'll, I'll remedy that. But it's, soon. it's definitely streaming in HD, so we can just watch it yeah, that way. It's on HBO Max now. But yeah, he he feels like he, he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't either. want to be there. Well, again, like I've also heard a lot about there are a lot of this is on the cutting room floor because you watch like the original trailers and there's like scenes that are like not even just like lines from like there's different locations we do not see in the movie. Well, and to your point about the Spider-Man thing is that like there's a whole shot of like Leto running down the street and there's a, a poster of Spider-Man in the background that just has murderer spray painted across him that it seems like they cut out for the legal reasons you're referencing. When he runs and that's a scene where he runs into in person uh, Michael Keaton in that trailer. Oh, He's yeah. He's like, hey, Doc, good to see you. And it's supposed to be like, Meh. And of course, they shoehorn those like after credit scenes. I wonder if that was supposed to be the, the post credit yeah, scene at first. And they just, I don't, what the fuck did they do? They botched that so hard. Well, that was actually the scene, but he in that trailer, he had the orange jumpsuit on, which is when he escaped from jail. Um, so I think it was going to be central to the film. It was like, oh, this is going to be cool. They probably had to recut it for the timeline thing because Spider-Verse came out first. And that's how they, because they have the whole sky-breaking thing, and that's oh, how no he gets home. in. Because yeah. technically... Vultures in a different timeline than Morbius. How do I know this shit? I don't even watch these fucking movies. I had that thought today to where this was the first superhero movie I've watched in a theater since Endgame? You saw Venom 2 in the theater? No. Oh, you didn't? Oh, no. I saw Venom in the theater. That might be the last one. Yeah. Is that after Endgame? I think it was around the same year. 
Same year. Yeah. That's the last one I saw in the theater. Everything else I've watched on streaming. I've just given up. I haven't watched any of the TV series. I had the other thought today too because the the uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness trailer played and I was watching it and I was like, oh, I guess this is going to be the first Sam Raimi movie that I skip in theaters <sighs> in however many years. I'm really, I mean, I'm going to go, you know, I mean, between the two of us, I'm more, I haven't completely given up yet. I'm, for me though, to be as disillusioned as I am is that means they, they fucked up pretty bad. Like they've lost me. My eyes just glaze over every time or I'm like, Oh great. Another one. Wonderful. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I've, I've definitely been feeling that lately where, you know, even watching movie like six underground, I said, you know, Michael Bay is not a perfect filmmaker, but this is a, like it's a Michael Bay, it's movie. a Michael Bay movie and it's not an IP and like, it's crazy and it's rated R and it's not a four quadrant movie trying to please everybody. It's a Michael Bay offensive reactionary movie. And, Out of its mind. and I was like, cool. Like I'd rather have that than just this light, like Shang-Chi just force fed, you know, narrative stuff. I forgot that movie existed until you just referenced it. Oh, that was, I think the last one I watched from the MCU is black widow. Yeah. The, I watched that one and went, all right, I'm good. Like, I don't think I need it anymore. Good, because good honestly, like, I, I just don't, like, I think if I watch Multiverse of Madness at this point, I wouldn't even know what was going on. Because even watching the trailer, I was like, you really need to have seen everything, like, including, like, WandaVision and shit. Because, like, want, like Wanda's going on and on about, like, choices and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening in this. And, like, this is only a two-minute trailer. Like, God, if I have to sit through a two-and-a-half-hour movie, I might just fall asleep the entire time. Yep, they want you to do your homework first, so... Uh, but, uh, the, the one thing I do want to point out though, is there is a little bit of good and unintentional comedy in Morbius. There's probably a lot, but I was just so disengaged that I wasn't able to pick all of it out. Um, but <laughs> when he does the experiment to where he, you know, they go out on a ship to be in, uh, international waters and whatever. And that's when he infects himself with the serum. And then he kills basically all the mercenaries that they inexplicably hired to be there. Like I Doesn't still wasn't 100% sure why you and had to have mercs but they're, there. They're bad guys too. And they're bad guy mercs. <laughs> like whatever. But like he kills all of them too. And like, obviously he has to get the ship saved. <laughs> So he he like jumps on the comm to, to, to like radio the Coast Guard or something. He goes, we're about 14 miles off of Staten Island. And I was like, all right, hold on. Does that count as international waters? I'm not sure. Like, where does international waters begin? I'm not sure Staten Island. <laughs> I mean, it's a shithole, but I don't know about international waters. When it's the Murnau ship too. Like there's these little, oh, these like... It's one of those things, it kind of felt very similar to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where the scene the guy walks up and goes, Call me Ishmael. They think like just mentioning something from Moby Dick makes it smart. It's like, no, it does not. We it read. actually it actually makes you worse because You know who reads good? Michael Morbius. He reads real good. Martin, I gotta tell you, I got nothing left on Morbius. So we're gonna wrap this one up. Happy to. Thanks, guys, for listening to uh, Secret Handshake. Do check out all of the Blade movies, including Trinity. I mean, if you see Morbius, that's on you. But we'll see you next week for some Michael Bay action. See you then. See you then.